Good morning. And let's begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit will join us today. We've come because we want to share our love for you with each other. We ask that your spirit will be among us, that your angels will, will watch over us, and that you will be glorified in our conversation today. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in our quarterly worship, and the lesson title is Worship from Exile to Restoration. Somebody read for us the memory verse, uh, Haggai 1.6. You have so much, bring in little, ye eat, but ye have not enough. You drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put into a bag with holes. What is the message of this passage? Futility in their worship. Futility in their worship. Is that the message? Well, our worship. Our worship? (laughs) Futility in worship? Was it just worship? Well, the way they were going about it, they're... They they didn't even have success... In their everyday life, they're farming and everything. It was it, God couldn't bless them. Everything was in vain. Why was everything in vain? They had turned from the Lord. Well, do you think this could remind us about priorities and where we put our energy, where we invest ourselves? Mm-hmm. Do we invest ourselves in things that don't matter, that pass away, that fade, or do we primarily make our investment for eternal realities, uh, building for a kingdom to come? What does it matter if we gain the entire world and lose our soul, Christ said? The first two paragraphs in the lesson says, It is very hard from our perspective today, removed as we are by more than 1,900 years from the final destruction of Jerusalem Temple, to understand how significant the Temple was to the Jewish nation's national and religious life. It was the apex of worship, the center of their ethnic and religious identity. It was where the Lord said he would dwell and rule in the midst of Israel. It was where the followers of Yahweh found cleansing, forgiveness, grace, and reconciliation. Because it was truly the Lord's house, many people disbelieved the prophetic warnings that it would be destroyed by Babylon. How could the Lord allow his sacred temple to be obliterated? We only can guess at the shock when indeed the prophets, as the prophets warned, the Babylonians raised it. And yet, even amid all the devastation, the Lord promised that the nation would be restored, the temple rebuilt, and Israel given another chance to fulfill her prophetic destiny. What was the problem that they had with the temple? Idol worshiping the temple. Idol worship of the temple. It was too much of a business and not enough of a ministry. Oh, business rather than a ministry. Oh, I like that too. Wow, boy, because we're going to be asking if there are any applications of the lessons that they needed to learn to our lives today. Wow, that, that phrase really stands out, doesn't it? A business instead of a ministry. Did the temple of Jerusalem have any ability to save sinners? No. no. Was the temple in Jerusalem... The literal reality of God's kingdom or merely an inspired theater, a lesson book? And what did Jesus say or do to try to help them shift their thinking about the temple? And I wrote some down. Destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Okay, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days, designed to teach what? Okay, that the, that the temple was only symbolic of something else, right? The body. I am the bread of heaven. Designed to teach what? Christ is the anti-type. As I'm presenting these things to you, I want you to think mindset 2,000 years ago. They're coming to worship at this temple. They've got this idea that this temple actually has some significance and meaning. Christ says, destroy this temple in three days. 
I'll raise it up, is he trying to shift their thinking away from a concrete interpretation of what the temple means. When he says, I am the bread of heaven that has come down, is he trying to shift their thinking away from the showbread on the, and the manna kept in the ark? When he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. What was the lesson? What was he trying to teach? Something more than what they had thought about the system. Um, when he said to the woman, neither will you worship at this mount nor at the temple, but in spirit and truth. Is he trying to shift their thinking about the purpose and meaning of the temple? When he cleansed the temple from the buyers and sellers with the cord, what was, what was, he, what was that designed to teach? I think he was trying to shift their view of what God was like. That he wasn't somebody that they were going to buy off. Because it was a business, just as someone else mentioned earlier. Um, you came, and if you didn't buy the sacrifices, you didn't go home blessed. So he's saying, I'm not here to be bought. I want, I'm here to, I, because I want to be with you. Okay, I'm not here to be bought. My favor isn't here. It, you don't have to appease me in some way or buy me off. And then when you add to that, I'm the bread of heaven that has come down. I'm not here for you to give me something. I'm here to bless you and heal you. Right. I, eat, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. My, I'm here for you rather than you here to earn something from me. I like that, yes. And if the sanctuary were representative of his work within us... They were cheating people there. It wasn't just honest business, it was bad business. Yes, uh, yes, there's no question. And he drove them out because they completely misrepresented God. So is there an idea that Christ was trying to help them see that this building was only important to try and elevate their thinking to a higher plane? That was his message, that was his purpose. And they didn't get there, did they? Do we struggle with that today as a people when it comes to the heavenly sanctuary? that we are stuck on a concrete interpretation and our minds need to be lifted above tradition. Why did the temple in Jerusalem, because we're talking about the destruction, why did it get destroyed twice? Why? What caused this to happen? What led to the destruction of the temple? Rebellious hearts of the people. Rebellious hearts of the people. Okay. Did God destroy the temple? They misrepresented the one who lived in the temple. They misrepresented him. Think through the object lesson now. What does the temple itself represent? Desire of Ages 161. In cleansing the temple, Jesus announced his mission as the Messiah to enter upon his work. That temple, erected for the abode of the divine presence, was designed to be an object lesson for Israel and the world. From eternal ages, it was God's purpose that every created being from bright and holy seraph to man, should be a temple for the indwelling of the Creator. Because of sin, humanity ceased to be a temple for God, and God designed that the temple at Jerusalem should be a continual witness to the high destiny open to every soul. So what does the temple signify or represent? Christ, ultimately, who became human, who was the temple, destroyed this temple in three days, and each one of us, who, all of us, individually and corporately, you're a temple. Know ye not that you're a temple of God and the Spirit dwells in you? So, what led to the destruction of the object lesson? Their rebellious hearts. Is there a lesson there? What leads to the destruction of the literal temple, you and me? Yes. Because they did not accept Christ as the Messiah. And the last time he was in the temple, he said, your house is left unto you desolate. In other words, the, the ceremonies were no longer valid. He was the lamb slain okay. the foundation of the world. And so interpret that into the meaning past the symbols. They didn't accept him in their little theater. 
okay? The little theater represented the sanctuary of the soul. If we don't accept Christ into our heart, what happens? To, to, the, to, the, to the spirit temple. Did God destroy that temple? Will God destroy the spirit temple that refuses to accept him in? No. Hmm. And if that continues, then we die, we'll die twice. We'll experience the second death. Is there a parallel between the second destruction of the temple and, and the second death? Interesting. I hadn't considered that. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 have, I, I like that. Yeah. It left to you desolate. There was a destruction and a resurrection, only to be destroyed, never to be resurrected again. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. I think so. There's another lesson there. When they destroyed Christ, when he actually came and walked in the temple and they threw him out and destroyed him, there was, not, there was no remedy left for their, their condition. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph says, Apostasy does not happen overnight. Whole peoples do not fall away in a day, a week, or even a year. The process is much slower. A little change here, a little compromise there, a little less rigidity in order to keep up with the times or to be, re- or to be relevant or to fit better with the trends of society and culture. Bit by bit, step by step, and before long, a whole nation is doing things that perhaps a generation or two ago would have been looked upon with horror. Such was the fate of ancient Israel and Judah. Such was the fate of early Christianity. Such can be the fate of any church, including ours, that does not carefully and jealously guard the sacred truths and practices given it by the Lord. I thought this uh, paragraph was profound. And I think it's appropriate for us to take some time and decompress it. The lesson is absolutely right. Apostasy does not happen overnight. It is a gradual degradation from holiness to apostasy. But did you notice that the lesson is suggesting that one of the causes, in fact, let let me ask you as you read the paragraph, what is the lesson suggesting as one of the causes? The forms of of carrying out worship are what, at least that's my impression. The cause is that we don't hold on to traditions from generation to generation. We don't hold on to traditions, leads to it. And did you notice this phrase here? A little less rigidity. In order to get so rigidity helps keep us from apostasy, is the suggestion. If we remain rigid, sure didn't work for the Jews. <laughs> this is a exact question. Thank you so much. Exact question: Were the Jewish nation given a rigid set of rules at Sinai? Yeah. How did they do with that? With their apostasy? Yes. Let's go back to your illustration about the bread of heaven and the various symbols, and there's a human tendency, you see it throughout history, to figure out a way to make pleasing God some kind of simple little formula that I can do and then forget about it. And people always want to do that. Can I just go to church? Can I just take this bread into my mouth? Can I just uh, offer this sacrifice? And then it's taken care of. So let's walk through the steps that actually lead to apostasy. From holiness to apostasy. And, and I want to decompress it because their suggestion here is if we're rigid, we, we'll be protected. When we compromise and, and give up the, the traditions uh, of our forefathers, that, that leads us to apostasy. Well, the Jewish nation, as, as we just mentioned, had a very rigid code, extremely rigid. And in the Old Testament times, did it protect them from apostasy? How about when Christ came? Were they rigidly keeping the code? Did it keep them from apostasy? What about the apostolic church? Let's look at the New Testament church. Did they have a rigid set of guidelines? 
Apostolic Church, rigid set of guidelines, yes or no? Yes. No. No. Apostolic Church, here, here it is, it's out of Acts 15, 19, 20. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from meat uh, of strangled animals, and from blood. That was their code. That was the rules. That doesn't sound too rigid. It sounds pretty general. When the eunuch got baptized, remember the eunuch in Acts gets baptized, he's reading the book of Isaiah, Philip comes along, says, hey, let me tell, explain to you what that means. says, hey, there's water. What hinders us from being baptized? 28 fundamental doctrinal beliefs we've got to go through first. No, it was not the case. There was not a rigid set of beliefs he had to adhere to or ascribe to or attest to or take oath to. He had to accept Jesus Christ. That's what he had to do. And if you look at the early church, there were Arians and there were Trinitarians in the early church. People who believed Christ was fully God, people who believed Christ was created Son of God in the early church. There was a big battle that came to its head around 300 A.D. What about during the Dark Ages? Were there a rigid set of rules then? You know, if we look at history... It seems like when we get rigid rules, we get more apostasy. Hmm. Now the lesson is equating ancient Israel, if you read the lesson here, comparing ancient Israel with the early church. And I I got to thinking about that. Did ancient Israel coming out of Egypt and the early church start in the same place? How did one become a member of the camp of Israel? How did one become a member of the early church? Does it make a difference? They have a different starting point. Did the camp of Israel start with converted hearts? Or is it just human birth? Birth in, genetically born, into the camp of Israel, delivered out of Egypt, you're in the camp of Israel. What about the New Testament church and the apostolic church? They were at voluntary free choice to be converted. They, they're starting with a converted heart. Are they, so these two camps are not starting in their walk with God in the same place. Does that impact how we see God dealing with the two groups? It makes a big difference. Were outsiders welcomed into the camps of Israel? Could Absolutely. They followed the set of rigid rules? Yep. They had to choose to go. Yeah, they, to they had to choose to... If somebody wanted to join the acting troupe known as Israel and wanted to become part of that um, theater, all they had to do was agree to abide by the script given by the director from heaven. And if you're willing to abide by the script, then you can be part of the theater. Yes? There are two issues I think we confuse in talking about membership and baptized into Jesus. And it happens because uh, we have a very close association with joining the church. You have the vote for membership just seconds before baptism occurs. And so we tend to equate joining the church, the 28 fundamentals, versus being baptized into Jesus. Completely different story, but we've made them, or somehow they've become one in our minds. Yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Let me ask you this. When you use the word church right then, joining the church, what were you referring to? Well, that's another interesting thing. I believe that it's important to understand what the church is. Because I don't. hinges a whole lot of other understandings. So when they were baptized, when Philip baptized the eunuch, did Philip, did the eunuch, when he was baptized into Christ, become a member of the church? 
I believe that he was a member of the Church of the Firstborn, as I call it, that's referred to in Hebrews. So yes, he was a member of the church. Right. And so the, what you're suggesting is the difference between the church, which is what some call the church invisible, the church that's actually the body of Christ, and then the organo- organizational institutions that call themselves churches. They're not the same. And it's a good, that's a very nice distinction that you point out. Do we sometimes miss that distinction, thinking that membership in a particular denominational organization is equal to membership of the body of Christ? Is it? Can a person be a member of an organized church and not actually yet be a member of the body of Christ? Yeah. And, and I think we miss this. And this is, a, this is an excellent point. Um, so how did apostasy, apostasy, then we have the apostolic church. How, how did the apostasy enter the apostolic church? The great divergence, the, the big divergence, there was a slow erosion over centuries, but the big divergence came with Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. Did you know that Nicaea, uh, the Council of Nicaea was not held at a church? Nicaea was, a, was a Constantine's palace over in Turkey. And he called the bishops from all over the empire to Turkey to lay out a creed, the first creed, the Council of Nicaea. And from this, we have had problems ever since in the church. From this problems, for instance, they came away from this council with distorted ideas of God and came to view him through the lens of, of a pagan hierarchical system. The church began to model itself. And so what, how did church structure different after the Council of Nicaea and before the Council of Nicaea? What happened? What was the authority in the church in the apostolic church? Where did it rise, r- reside? Yes. Well, people who were, uh, you know, in charge, like Constantine, they not only were in charge politically, but they were considered like, like Herod and others, quote, a little god. Well, uh, yeah, the, the, uh, the emperor of Rome was considered the head of the church. He was the divine leader of, of the spiritual. And so when he converted to Christianity, then he really took over the headship, in his mind anyway. And that's why he began to act the way he did, by calling the bishops together, so he could now exercise his authority over the church. And he seduced the bishops with all the glamour and glory of Rome, and they began to model themselves after the empire. And I want to show you how they modeled after the empire. Did you notice the church began to structurally become an authoritarian top-down organization? Where the bishops, ultimately with the culminating in the pope, have authority top-down. That's not how the church was designed. Um, creeds were developed as tests of fellowship, orthodoxy and thought, orthodoxy of thought and thought police were established um, in order to tell our political party from that political party or our religion from that religion. And church buildings began to be built to model after Rome. Did you know there was not a church for believers to, to fellowship in until after the third century? The first three centuries of Christianity they met in homes. And then when they built church buildings, they were modeled after the uh, official buildings of Rome, the, the political buildings of Rome, uh, and or the Roman cult temples. Uh, divisions between the royalty, or aristocracy, and commoners began with the clergy and the laity, which is not part of the, the Christian principle of New Testament. There is no division between clergy and laity in the Bible. We are all a priesthood of believers. But now there became a hierarchical organization where some are more more privileged than others, and those of us who are not privileged to be uh, ordained and, and selected to the, the clerical robes, we must surrender our thinking to the higher intelligent people who have the clerical robes. A, a process in which darkness came upon the world, the Dark Ages. The church 
elevated the clergy, ultimately, uh, with an authoritative top-down situation. It became more rigid, more rules required, more tests of fellowship. And then membership became necessary to have political office. Ultimately, kings had to acknowledge the authority of the Pope in order to have rulership in their land. Yes? In the Acts Church, Peter was, was given an assignment by Christ at the, at the lake to feed my sheep, be a shepherd or whatever. Early on, the apostles or the church leadership hadn't established, we're going to devote ourselves to study the Bible and you guys distribute the food. You know, so there was early on a differentiation between the biblical leaders, for lack of a better term, and those who are doing other functions within the church. Um, functions, nice, what you said, not authority. Not authority. See, those who were the, what did Jesus say? If you want to be first, you will be? When Jesus got all power, he, John 13, took off his robes and washed feet. You notice he said, feed my sheep. In other words, serve. See, in Christ's kingdom, the higher you are, the lower you go to serve. In the beast system, you get more prestige, more power, more privileges, more authority, more ability to lord over, more people waiting on you. You see, it's a top-down dictatorial process rather than a bottom-up service process. And if you look at the early church, the people like Peter and Paul went around and did church planting and then left. They didn't stay to, to rule over. They came back to inspire, to share, to, to give guidance, but the local, the local leadership. And how did elders emerge in the church? By work of the Holy Spirit, not by election. So anyway, as we go forward, Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your traditions. Do we struggle with traditions in our church today? And, and I came across this poem that I really liked. It was, it was written by a guy named Sam Walter Foss, uh, lived in 18, from 1858 to 1911. And it's, it's about how traditions can become part of our, our way of doing things, and we don't even know it. It's called the calf path. That's really cool. It says, One day, through the primeval wood, a calf walked home as all good calves should. But made a trail all bent askew, a crooked trail as all calves do. Since then three hundred years have fled, and I infer the calf is dead. But still he left behind his trail, and thereby hangs my moral tale. A trail was taken up next day by a lone dog that passed that way. And then a wise bellwether sheep pursued the trail or vale and steep, and drew the flock behind him too, as all good bellwethers always do. And from that day, or hill and glade, through those old woods, a path was made. And many men wound in and out, and dodged and turned and bent about, and uttered words of righteous wrath, because t'was such a crooked path. But still they followed, do not laugh, the first migrations of that calf. And through this winding woodway stalked, because he wobbled when he walked. This forest path became a lane that bent and turned and turned again. This crooked lane became a road where many poor horse with his load toiled on beneath the burning sun and traveled some three miles in one. And thus a century and a half they trod the footsteps of that calf. The years passed on in swiftness fleet. The road became a village street. And this before men were aware a city's crowded thoroughfare. 
And soon the central street was this of renowned metropolis. And men two centuries and a half trod in the footsteps of that calf. Each day a hundred thousand rout followed that zigzag calf about, and o'er his crooked journey went the traffic of a continent. A hundred thousand men were led by one calf near three centuries dead. They followed his crooked way and lose one hundred years a day, for thus such reverence is lent to well-establish precedent. A moral lesson this might teach were I ordained and called to preach. For men are prone to go at blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and in and out and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. They keep the path a sacred groove along which all their lives they move. But how the wise old wood gods laugh who saw the first primeval calf. Ah, many things this tale might teach, but I am not ordained to preach. <laughs> did you like that? Yes. Yeah. Do you, do you, well, I, I heard that and I said, wow, is that not true? We get stuck in ruts of generations before. No one questions. No one asks. No one inquires. How do we do this? We just keep doing it thoughtlessly, blindly, routing back and forth. Monday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, As we have touched on all through this quarter, the final test in the last days deals with the question of worship. All humanity would be split into two camps. Those who worship the Creator, the one who made the heavens and the earth, and those who worship the beast in his image. Even though the sequence in the prophetic picture has yet to unfold, one could argue that even now all the world is divided into two camps, those who are faithful to the Lord and those who are not. There is no middle ground either way. We are on one side or the other. And the first question what do you see the final test being over? And we're going to jump down, and unless you've read your lesson, they give us some suggestions. Is it over the Sabbath? No. Is it over lifestyle? Is it over atonement theories? Beliefs about hell? About the character of God versus the character of Satan? So the third paragraph says, the second commandment, the one forbidding idolatry was at issue here. The fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, will be the outward issue of the last days. How interesting that both are commandment, both how interesting how interesting that these both are commandments that were changed and tampered with by the beast power itself, Daniel seven twenty five. Both commandments are tied in directly with worship. The second forbids the worship of idols, while the fourth shows why one should not worship idols, and that is because the Lord of nature, not nature itself, is the one who created and redeemed them. So thoughts about this idea that the two systems of worship will come down to the, the tampering with the law and changing the, 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 the times and the laws, Daniel 7.25. What do you think? Do you agree that the end will, will somehow be related to God's law and, and how it was changed by the system? It seems like that the law is the character of God and so that if you have two different individuals, you have God who's true, righteous, and you have Satan who's the adversary, he will not reflect that character. So it would seem that would include more than just two. It would seem to include all. I like where you're going with this. The law is an expression of God's character. So if there is a changing of law, it has to be more than just two. It has to be the entire system that, that is at fault. I like that. Let's see if we can't develop that further. Historically, what do we usually say will be the test? The Sabbath. The Sabbath. 
the law, which, and, and, and the fourth commandment will be the point specially controverted. Right? And the beast system versus the seal of God, and we've, we've spent many hours developing theories along this line. I'm going to suggest to you, there's no question that the, that the little horn power of Daniel 7 did make a change in number 2 and number 4. That's, that's straightforward. It's pretty historically obvious. They admit it themselves. It's not, it's not, a, not a point to be con, con, uh, of controversy because they acknowledge they did it and they claim the authority to do it. Um, but I'm going to suggest this is not the most significant change to the law. I'm going to suggest to you that the most significant change we've missed because we focused on the two that we just met, the obvious change. But there's a subtle, more uh, hidden change, yes. Well, I think that maybe maybe the character of God and the Sabbath will be the outstanding things. But you know, we basic Satan has basically done away with the other commandments toward mankind because morality is basically a com- becoming a thing of the past. So is covetousness and 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 you know today if you want something you kill for it. So the whole commandment and as he says, it's part of the character of God. So Satan is doing his best to do away with all of them. And let's see if we can't connect that to the change in the law, why that's happening. Because I'm going to suggest to you what you've just identified as a process is a result in a change in the law that occurred in the thinking of Christians by this beast power that we have yet to really fully, I think, unpack. Um, so in order to do that, let's first understand God's law from Scripture, from inspiration. What is the law that the system sought to change? And I'm just going to give you some passages. You can write these down, so you can go check me on these. Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians 5.14 The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. James 2.8 If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Matthew 12.37-40 Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Proverbs 12, 28. In the way of righteousness there is life. Along that path is immortality. Think of that through. Um, The way of righteousness there is life. Well, how about Proverbs 21, 21? He who pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Or Psalms 19, 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving, bringing life to the soul. And those are all scripture. Ellen White actually expounds on what I just read, and this is what she says. In living for self, in other words, those who are self-centered rather than loving, says in living for self, he has rejected that divine love which would have flowed out in mercy to his fellow man. Thus, he has rejected life. For God is love, and love is life. Or great controversy, oh, that was um, Christ Object Lessons 258. Great controversy 493. Our only definition of sin is that given in the word of God, it is transgression of the law, it is the outworking of a principle at war with the great law of love, which is the foundation of the divine government. Notice the transgression of the law is not primarily a behavioral problem. It's a principle of selfishness at war with the law of love, which is the basis of the divine government. Uh, Further down on the same page, the law of love being the foundation of the divine government of God, the happiness of all creatures being dependent upon their perfect accord to its great principles of righteousness. And then in Desire of Ages 21, but turning from all lesser representations, we behold God in Jesus. Looking into Jesus, we see that it is the glory of our God to give 
I do nothing of myself, said Christ. The living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father. I seek not my own glory, but the glory of him who sent me. It was these words, in these words is set forth the great principle upon which the law, upon which is the law of life for the universe. Think this through, the law of life for the universe. I'm talking the construction protocols, how God built life in the universe to operate. This is the law upon which everything exists. All things Christ received from God. He took to give. So, in the heavenly courts, in his ministry for all created beings, through the beloved Son, the Father's life flows out to all. Through the Son, it returns in praise and joyous service, a tide of love to the great source of all. And thus, through Christ, the circuit of beneficence is complete, representing the character of the great giver, the law of life. So what is the law of God? And, and how would you describe that law? Yes. There's a difference between something that's intrinsic in something and extrinsic. Excellent. Excellent. So, so you notice what he just said. The, the law of God, he says he's trying to draw a distinction now. The law between something that's intrinsic, inherent, something that's extrinsic, imposed. This law that we just described, this law that the universe is built upon, this law of love that emanates from God's character, did he instill this, enact it, impose this, or is it an expression of his own person that when he created, he just built everything to run in harmony with his own nature? So is it a natural law like laws of health, or is it an imposed law like the laws of our, our nation? What did the system, the beast system, the horn power, seek to do in our understanding of God's law? It made it extrinsic. It changed it from a law that everything is built to run upon to an imposed law by an authoritarian universal uh, uh, dictator. And now as imposing a law upon his creature we have to obey, he must punish those who deviate from his law and he must be appeased from that punishment. And I'm going to suggest to you that the significant change in the law was not simply number four and number two, but it was, the, it was the entire concept of how God's law operates in his universe. From a law that is inherent, the law of love that everything is built upon, to an imposed law. And when you get your mind around this, I'm going to tell you guys, the church is still infected with this, this distorted idea. And this is why we can't finish our mission. Several hands, yes. I'd like to focus on the beast system for just a minute. We hear the term mark of the beast I like to change one word in that and say the mark of a beast. What distinguishes a beast from us? And I think therein lies a basic uh, solution to what we're talking about. A beast has to be told what to do or controlled. I, I like what you're saying. Think about, that, about this. Inspiration tells us that in Scripture, beasts were always used to represent earthly kingdoms because no earthly kingdom represented the kingdom of God. Beasts ravage and tear and practice the law of survival of the fittest. Me first. Okay? Whereas God's kingdom was represented by the Lamb, who self-sacrificed the kingdom of giving, the kingdom of love. And thus, the, the mark of the beast, I like what you're saying, is a mark in the character in which we will sacrifice others. We will use coercive power. They can neither buy nor sell, say them, who have the mark of this beast. We will practice the principles of the word. We have a top-down, hierarchical, authoritarian, dictatorial process. This is the mark. This is not the kingdom of God. And I'm going to suggest to you that this power in Daniel chapter 7 has infected our thinking about God's entire government so that even if we get back to the right day of the week and we throw out idols, we still operate on a law that he imposed upon us and he must enforce upon us and he must punish us if we break it. 
And this is still coming out of the, the, the B system. Yes. Well, Jesus agreed. If we're looking at our, the actual law that most people think we're going to be uh, having a problem over at the end of time, Jesus agreed that the summation of it was love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And we don't have any problem. The, the world doesn't have any problem with most of those laws. They understand the rationale behind them. Only the fourth commandment seems to be the issue. So how do we relate the fourth commandment to unselfishness? We're going to come to that in just a second. That's, that's actually the next part of my notes. But I want to first, before we move off that, because we spent our entire lives in this church talking about the fourth commandment. I want to spend a little time talking about the concept of imposed law versus this natural law to make sure that you really get your mind around the significance of the change and what difference does it make to you to have an imposed law versus a natural law. Um, if you, when people, yeah, imposed law versus a natural law. This is out of Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. Christ came to save fallen man and Satan with fiercest wrath met him on the field of conflict. For the enemy knew that when divine strength was added to human weakness, man was armed with power and intelligence and could break away from the capacity, from the captivity in which he had bound him. What kind of captivity was man bound? We were bound in fear and selfishness. We were bound in fear of God. We didn't think God really loved us. We thought God would punish us. We were afraid to approach him. As soon as Adam and Eve he ran and hid because they were afraid. We were bound in this captivity. Uh, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Christ said, we were to be freed. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. Free from what? We war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. This is it. So, notice, Satan sought to intercept every ray of light from the throne of God. He sought to cast a shadow across the earth that men might lose the true views of God's character and that the knowledge of God might become extinct on the earth. This is how he holds us captive, by the lies about God. He caused truth of vital importance to be so mingled with error that it had lost its significance. The law of Jehovah was burdened with needless exactions and traditions, and God was represented as severe, exacting, revengeful, and arbitrary. Why? Because we have the idea that God poses laws, and as the great lawgiver, he has to enforce law. See? He was pictured as one who could take pleasure in the suffering of his creatures. The very attributes that belong to the character of Satan, the evil one represented as belonging to the character of God. Jesus came to teach men of the Father to correctly represent him before the fallen children of earth. Angels could not fully portray the character of God, but Christ, who was the living impersonation of God, could not fail to accomplish this work. The only way in which he could set and keep men right, set right, justification, keep right, sanctification, the only way he could set and keep men right was to make himself visible and familiar to their eyes. That man might have salvation, he came directly to man and became a partaker of his nature. You see the central core issue. Do you see the antagonistic, that, that man of perdition who set himself up in God's temple? This attack on God's law, this change times and laws. What do you all think? Yes. The uh, little horn then assumed power to change the whole law, not just the fourth commandment. Yes, the whole law, because the little horn power is a dictatorial power. And if you actually understand God's law as a natural law, then it undermines his ability to be the vicar of Christ on earth and to be able to use the armies that he used to punish people who didn't do things the way he did. But when you change God's laws and authoritarian law, then he has the right to use those same methods to punish people for disobedience. And, this is, and think about how this has infected Christianity. Think about how this, how this has undermined our ability to experience unity and love in the church. Think about how we don't use 
you know, swords and, and bullets to kill people that disagree with us religiously now most of the time. Occasional abortion clinic will get blown up, uh, you know, in the Lord's name. But, you know, other than that, we don't do that. How do we do it? We, pardon? Reputations. If somebody disagrees with us, we will use church authority to banish them, to put them out, to ruin their reputation, to attack. Same principles at work. And so those who had the right day, but had the wrong idea of law and God's nature, put him on the cross and wanted him down by sunset so they could keep the Sabbath. And I'm going to suggest to you, there will be many Seventh-day Adventists at the end of time, keeping the Sabbath, practicing this, this authoritarian dictatorial law. Because they've accepted that distorted view of God's law, rather than understanding that the law is the principle of his own nature and character that he built everything to run, run upon. And thus, what it comes down to in the end, uh, Revelation chapter 12, those who are ready to meet Christ, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. They're not interested in saving self anymore. They're like Christ, willing to give themselves. Um, Gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might live, Paul said. Take my name out of the book if you're going to wipe out Israel, Moses said. Willing to give our lives. This is a change where the law of love is put back in the temple where it belongs. So a question on the Sabbath came up. How does the Sabbath fit into all this? Because we're told that the Sabbath is a test. It's the symbol of what we believe in. It's It's a test. Let me ask you this. Is there a difference between a test at school and a test done at the hospital? That's not really. They're both designed to, for, yeah. When you go to school, are there examinations at school? Are there examinations at the hospital? Are they the same type of examination? Hmm. How about yesterday and the people that failed, they take the class again. That's a diagnostic. You don't have the material. Yeah, yeah. So they take a test, an examination, they fail, mm-hmm. and then you heal them. I hope you. Yeah. <laughs> have you heard? Um, I'm going to suggest at the end that the test. The examination is not an examination of record books. It's an examination of character. Your hearts, my hearts are being examined. And just as at the hospital, the tests reveal health or the tests reveal disease, the condition that you're in, so to the end, our lives will reflect a selfless love for others or they'll reflect a willingness to exploit and punish others to protect ourselves. So how does the Sabbath fit in? Have you heard people traditionally talk about the Sabbath as an arbitrary test of obedience? We just read that this is one of Satan's allegations against God. It's an arbitrary test. There's no reason. God said do it. He's got authority. He's got power. If you don't keep the Sabbath, this is the exact distortion from the B system. So Adventists who stand up and say the Sabbath is an arbitrary test of obedience from an authoritarian God are still promoting the change in the law by, by the little horn power of Daniel 7, even though they're promoting the right day of the week. So have you heard the metaphor that the Sabbath... The metaphor used is the Sabbath is like a birthday. You heard this metaphor? Mm-hmm. You know, it's my birthday, and, and uh, you, you know, if you really care about me, you'll, you'll celebrate. You can't just substitute any other day of the year for my birthday. You can't just substitute any other day for the Sabbath. Have you heard this argument? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, how, consider this. If your spouse said to you, remember my birthday to celebrate with me and show me your love and devotion. 
364 days you have to work and play and do all the things of, you, of your own. But on the 365th day is my birthday. And in it, you shall only do those things that celebrate me. And if you choose to ignore my birthday and make it like all the other days of the year, then for breaking this law I have commanded you to observe, I will be forced to kill you. <laughs> now, shall we celebrate my birthday? You see, this is what the Sabbath would look like if it was an arbitrary test of obedience. I've created a Sabbath, I've given it to you, and I'll celebrate it, and if you don't, I'll be forced to kill you. You see something wrong with this? Is that how we understand the Sabbath? I'm going to tell you, I've been to Revelation seminars, exactly how it's presented. Have you not heard that presented that way? So, how do we understand it then? What is the context in which the Sabbath was created? Yeah. What was the context? The context in which it came into existence. Controversial war. Creation. Creation week of this planet. What was happening in the universe when this planet was created? War. war. What kind of war? Was it a nuclear weapon war? Ah, a war of ideas. Over what? So imagine you're an angel in heaven. Lucifer, your friend and buddy you've known your whole life, comes to you and says, Hey, um, I've discovered some things about God that that you know, I thought he, I thought we had freedom here. I thought he, he really gave us you know individuality and, and he loved us. But I've discovered he's a power monger. If you don't do what he says, he'll, he'll hurt you. You don't have freedom up here. Now, if you're that angel in heaven, what would you do? You've known you've known Lucifer for, for ten million years. You've been to his house a million times. You've sung in the choir with him. He's your friend. He tells you this with tears in his eyes. What do you do? Would you be able to look back on Lucifer's life and say, well, he's had a really rough life. He's gone deviant many times. He's been selling drugs. He's been you know, uh, you know, running a black market, ringing a prostitution ring. Um, you know, would you be able to look back on his life and say, he's really deviant? No. Would you look back on his life and what's his life look like? It's the whole time you've known it. What's it look like? Perfection. 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 So he tells you this lie. You go, might you want to pray for wisdom? So you go to God. God, I've, I've heard something. It's really unsettling. I've got this strange little chill down my spine I've never had before when I heard this. Um, God, I, I love you, but I, I love Lucifer too. I don't want to choose. What would God say? I'm glad you love us both because love is good, but I have to assure you what Lucifer's saying is wrong. Oh, man, I knew it. I knew, he had a, I knew he just had a misunderstanding. Lucifer, man, I just talked to God. It's been a big mistake. It's been a misunderstanding. Good news. It's not like you say. And Lucifer puts his hand on your shoulder, tears in his eyes, looks you in the eye and says, I know, that's the problem, God's lying. And what do you do? This is the problem. This is going on in heaven. What would you do? Who do you trust? So this, look at the evidence. And this is what God did. In the context of this confusion, the angelic hosts are debating the issue back and forth. Minds are being confused. Satan is trying to twist and, and make everything subtle. God says, let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let the land come forth. And you can see the, the, the minds of the angels are drawn to this little corner of the Milky Way where he is beginning to terraform planet Earth. He says, wow, did you see what he did today? What do you think he's going to do tomorrow? And on day six, he says, let us make man in our image. Let them be fruitful and multiply. And as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come into unity and create, now we have this incredible creation. Two separate individuals come into the unity of love, give of themselves, and create beings in their image. And he told them to be fruitful and multiply before sin. And, and what happens if they would have done that? If they would have stayed faithful? If they would have had children in a world with no sin? Just perfect 
godly love, would they have had children to lord over, to dominate, to abuse, to exploit, to take advantage of, to demand worship and slavery from? Or would they have been giving of themselves constantly for the good of their kids? And the universe would have looked in and said, I get it. God is not create us to wait on him, but he's giving of himself constantly for our good. We see the lesson here. Wait, 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 because I'm, I'm tying it to the Sabbath now. So you're still that angel in heaven. Satan sees, whoa, there's big problems. This lesson could destroy all my little lies because this is powerful evidence. What do I do? Oh, so you're that angel watching, considering Lucifer whispers in your ear. It's like, look, guys, I didn't say God wasn't powerful. He's incredibly powerful. I mean, you on earth here today, we know just a couple grams of matter. We turn that matter back into energy. We call that a nuclear explosion. Just a couple grams of matter. That's how much energy is in that matter. How much energy did it take to make the whole planet? To make our sun, our solar system? So as, as, as God is, is doing this, this is incredible displays of might and power. And Lucifer said, look guys, I told you, he's flexing his muscles. He's trying to intimidate you. He's telling you, if you don't get in line, he's going to wipe you out and he can replace you with new beings anytime he wants. Now what do you do? Whoa. He twists everything. And so in this context, God says, universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence that we've given. Now, universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. Think it through for yourself. No pressure, no coercion. You're free. Make up your own minds. You see, day one through six of creation week, we learn God has power. That's what we learn. He has power. Day seven we learn the character of the one who wields the power. That he presents his evidence in love and leaves beings free. And every seven days we're reminded that the one who created is the one who leaves us free in love. And thus Sabbath observance as a test, because where does the new covenant say the law is written? In the heart. Sabbath observance as a test is a test of character because a true Sabbath keeper practices those same Sabbath instilled principles. We present the truth in love. We leave people free. And I'm going to tell you, those people who put Christ on the cross and went home to avoid work from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday were not Sabbath keepers. That's where the Sabbath comes in. Understanding its true significance in the context of of the war over God's nature and character. And that's why for all eternity future, we will celebrate the Sabbath. Because all eternity future, we celebrate the evidence given by God to his creatures in love and leaving us free to decide for ourselves. It's incredible. Yes? In the way that you're describing it, the, the ones who keep um, the Sabbath because it's written on their heart, it's not because they're being forced to or that they're f- afraid because if they don't do it, something will happen to them but because they choose to do it out of their own heart. Absolutely. That free response. That free response, yes. The greatest evidence is yet how God is going to show how he deals with those who serve him not, those who are against him. Yes, absolutely. How does he deal with the wicked in the end? One allegation, if you understand God's law as the beast system puts it out there, that he imposes law, then he imposes penalties, and he becomes the cosmic executioner, the cosmic source of death. Did anybody read my blog this week? Please go read my blog this week. It's called um, The Never-Ending Lie, You Will Not Surely Die. How that lie comes in. We, we know the obvious ones. Eternal mortal soul, uh, reincarnation, burn forever in hell. But the less obvious one is God will be required to kill you 
out of justice sake, implying that if he didn't kill you, you wouldn't die. God would just leave us alone. If he wouldn't use his power to terminate our lives, well, we could live forever in sin because there's nothing wrong with sin. There's something wrong with God who kills his creatures. It's a horrible infection and distortion. And that, again, is that hidden lie that we still embrace and teach in our church. Yes? Mature Christians will celebrate and, and love the idea you presented, you know, that that's how we're supposed to keep the Sabbath, in love and, and choice. But what about there are so many children in the faith? More or less, they need guidelines. Of course, we shouldn't tell them, do this or else. <laughs> I can tell you, I deal with adolescents in my office all the time. And when you deal with adolescents, I found it's much more profound to help them understand the reasons behind than just the rules for. You just give them a rule without a reason. Children, you can't really reason with. Very small children you can't reason with. Yes, so when we first come to Christ, we're a babe in the faith. And Paul says in Hebrews chapter 5, by this time you should be mature, eating spiritual meat, but you're still infants on milk. Infants are not acquainted with righteousness. So you're exactly right. Those who are the babes, who are still... And he goes on to say in chapter 6, right after that, he says, the, the infants, the ones not acquainted with righteousness, they're focused on acts that lead to death. In other words, they're very behavior-focused, the do's and the don'ts. That's what the infants focus on. And, and they don't have righteousness because they're not acquainted with it. It's all about the rules. Yes? But when you deal with a child, from the time you speak to that child, six months old, you always give a reason why you ask them to do something. They may not understand the reason, but you always give a reason. Some, some people do and some people don't. I can tell you in the schools that I grew up in. <laughs> they didn't always give reasons. Well, yes, they did. I, you're right. They absolutely always did give reasons. The Bible said it. Ellen White said it. The church said it. God said it. Yeah, that was the reasons given frequently. That's not a reason. But that was the reasons given. But I think anytime you deal with people, if you behave in an arbitrary way, you can expect them to rebel. Okay, other, other, yeah. yeah, you're exactly right. That's exactly the point. And that's why kids leave the church. Because they've never been told the truth about God's laws and natural law. They've been given this lie about God's law that's an imposed law. Someone in an arbitrary way, they will rebel. Paul said that um, the Ten Commandments were, he, he, he obeyed them all. And then he came to the tenth and he was crushed by the tenth. Because it was not something that he could do or whatever. It was a, a matter of his heart. For me growing up at Seventh-day Adventist, Isaiah 58 was that thing that crushed me. Because it was talking about how you didn't do your own will on the Sabbath day and all this, and the other these good things you're supposed to do. And it almost looked like a crushing weight, etc. Instead of an experiential belief and association with God. Because true Sabbath keeping in Isaiah 58... It must be a delight. Right. And if you don't enjoy it, then you're not keeping it. <laughs> wow, that's a huge burden, isn't it? <laughs> yes, over here. So does this mean that when people are immature as they're coming to Christ, it's better to bring them in through Revelation seminars with the beasts and all of this and scare them in and then teach them how to love God? Yeah. yeah. I think not myself. And I, and I think not. But I, I want to get back to, to what was said about this. What was said here. Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to get back to this. Um, what was said here about this, uh, the ultimate revelation would be how God deals with, with his enemies in the end. Um, this is out of Desire of Ages 761. It says, In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law could not be obeyed. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. 
this idea that God must punish is part of that other idea. If you have a law that's imposed, in order to be just, you have to impose penalties. If you have a law that's natural that you built life to operate upon, law of respiration, it's a law, you don't breathe, you're going to die, and somebody breaks it and ties a plastic bag over their head, God doesn't have to do anything to bring punishment to that. The punishment's inherent when you break that kind of law. And this is what sin does. Sin severs our connection with God. It destroys our mind. It destroys our character. It destroys our individuality. And the the ultimate result is ruin and death. And I'm going to read to you in closing. um, I want you to see a couple of paragraphs Ellen White wrote from Australia, sent to Uriah Smith uh, in 1890s. He was the editor of of the review. He didn't know what to do with it because it didn't fit his idea of law, so he filed it. It was discovered in the 1950s, put in the Selected Messages, page 235, first Selected Messages. The, t- the law of the Ten Commandments is not to be looked upon as much from the prohibitory side as from the mercy side. Its prohibitions are the sure guarantee of happiness and obedience. As received in Christ, it, notice, as the law is received in Christ, it works in us a purity of character that will bring joy through the eternal ages. Through the obedient, it's a wall of protection. We behold in it the goodness of God, who by revealing to men the immutable principles immutable principles of righteousness, the law of love, she's talking about, seek to shield them from the evils that result from transgression. Break the law of love, all those negative constants we talked about. Now notice this. Next, very next verses, after she talks about this law, what kind of law is it? An imposed law, a natural law. She says, we are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Next paragraph. The law is an expression of God's idea, his mind, his thinking, his character. When we receive it in Christ, it becomes our idea. It lifts us above the power of natural desires and tendencies, above temptations that lead to sin. Great peace have they, which love thy law. Nothing shall cause them to, thump, to stumble. The righteousness of the law in Christ is in harmony with heaven. Do you see this? How do you hear her describing law? Is it an imposed thing? No. And do you see the, the, the process of breaking it naturally results in ruin and death? And thus I'm going to suggest to you, that the beast system, that, that little horn power, that change in the law, it's not primarily about number two and number four. It's about the entire understanding of law being an imposed law rather than the law that it's an expression of the Creator's character. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gone to such lengths to bring us this truth. Lord, our, our hearts and minds have been, have been deceived through years but you have gone to great lengths to, to show us what your true nature and character is like. Thank you for sending Christ to reveal who you are. We pray now that your Holy Spirit will take all that Christ has achieved. Write your law of love on our hearts and minds. May we go out of here living lights for you. Enable us to communicate clearly the truths about your kingdom, that this message may go forward. Hearts can be freed, and we can see you coming soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.